This is They Create Worlds, Episode 9, The History of Mediagenic, Part 1. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today we are covering the history of Mediagenics, which apparently is Activision, after Activision, and yet before Activision. Yes, it's one of those periods where people don't really like to talk about it anymore. One of those little dalliances people have and then want to forget about. But unfortunately, because nobody wants to talk about it, it's also a very misunderstood period in Activision's history. There is a tendency to blame certain people for certain things, to let certain other people off the hook, and it's all just kind of a big mess. And very important, though, something worth talking about, I think. All right. Well, I think the best point in these kind of things is to start from the beginning, and in our uh, pre-work, you told me that Mediagenic, since it was Activision before it became Mediagenic, you said you wanted to start off with just after the Great Crash in 83, 84, 85. Sure. So as I think a lot of people already know, Activision was the very first third-party developer for consoles. Before Activision came into existence, the same company that made the hardware also made all the software for that particular game console. Activision was founded by four ex-Atari programmers, mm-hmm. Alan Miller, David Crane, Larry Kaplan, and Bob Whitehead, who were four of the very best programmers on the Atari 2600. Okay. And they joined together with a record industry executive named Jim Levy to create this company, Activision. And Activision did very well because since they had uh, four of the best programmers on a system that really needed expert programmers because of the very quirky limitations that the system itself had, they had an edge over a lot of other companies and released some products that did very well. Unfortunately, that market fell apart in 1983 with the video game crash. And nobody was ready for it. Activision had already known that the market was going to move at least partially into home computers at some point in the near future. And in fact, in 1982, had already been starting to take steps to address that situation. They had brought in a guy named Dick Lairberg to be a VP of product development, so to speak, and go out and find developers that they could work with to transition to the home computer market. So they were very much thinking about diversifying even before this crash happened. The problem was they were still a year or two out from being able to do that diversification. They were still very much invested in the VCS market, and that market was just gone. So effectively, they saw the writing on the wall, they started to take steps, but the crash happened too quickly for them to weather it. Sure, well, they weren't expecting a crash. They weren't expecting the market to just completely die. They knew that home computers were going to become important, Mm. and they were ready to transition a lot of their product into home computers. So they just wanted to evolve more, but they didn't expect the video game industry as it was to crash at all. So they were trying to diversify. They expected a more longer lingering death for certain aspects of the video game industry, but not a sudden abrupt death. Exactly. It literally died overnight. P. 
people were still buying video games throughout 1983, 1984, even a little bit in 1985, though not too much. But the problem is, is what they were buying was discounted product mm-hmm. because there was too much product in the market and the market couldn't absorb it all. And there was no mechanism to return that product to the publisher. So all the toy stores and discount houses, department stores, everyone had video games, had to put them in the discount bins and sell them for like three or four bucks. And then no one's really making money on that. Exactly. So when you try to release a brand new video game, you have to price it at a level that allows you to recoup your costs, which is mostly your manufacturing cost. Obviously, there's some development cost in making the game, but the big cost is the manufacturing cost because memory and cartridges are expensive. Right. And at $3, you cannot recoup your costs. It costs so, too much. Right. So companies like Activision were still trying to put out new games in the $35 to $40 price range, which was kind of the standard price range. No one was buying those because there were all of these cheap games available. And it didn't matter whether that new $35 game they were putting out was a much better game because this was very much a market geared towards children. This was the first gener- real generation of video games that were popular. You didn't have a savvy user base. You didn't have people that were going like, I want to make sure I have the best game. No, you just had parents being like, well, little Timmy said he wanted some video games. We'll just go, if I can spend $15 on video games and I can buy five for on a discount bin, why not go for that as opposed to spending 15 or more just to get one on these new games? Exactly. So when you had a situation like recently with the Wii market where you had a lot of shovelware on the Wii and a lot of discounted Wii software, didn't bring the whole market down with it because you still had very sophisticated users that were interested in having that better product that the Xbox 360 or the PS3 had to offer. But that's not the case in this time period. And so you just had a market that had completely fallen apart. So Activision could no longer sustain itself in this market, and neither could any of its competitors. There were a lot of third-party software developers in this period of time. Activision was the only one of any consequence that actually survived the crash. And the reason that they were able to do this is that they somehow managed in March 1983 to go public. And I say somehow managed because this was a period of time when the entire video game industry was collapsing, Mm. where the market didn't think that there was going to be a future in video games. So the fact that a video game company could convince brokerages and convince institutional investors that there was value in putting money into Activision's stock is fairly remarkable. And in fact... It's just amazing that anyone could even... Any business person would go, it looks like this industry is dying, and we have one of these people from this industry going public. Let's just throw a whole bunch of money at them and hope they do good. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, the kind of second biggest third-party publisher in Magic was all set to go public on December 10th, 1982. Their IPO was all ready to go. And just a couple of days before that, Atari made its first announcement that its earnings wouldn't be as much as they were initially stating, which was kind of from a stock market perspective when the crash began. Mm -hmm. And Imagix doing their IPO just a couple of days later, they had to cancel their IPO because nobody was going to purchase their video game stock two days after Atari said, we are not growing as much as we said we were. 
there could be some trouble coming. Right. And if Qatari, who is the market leader at that time, is saying the industry is in trouble, who else is going to invest money into other companies that are usually deploying their products on Atari, amongst other things? Exactly. And so I have interviewed Jim Levy, who was the founding CEO of Activision. And obviously, this was a question that I asked him, because I'm like, how did you possibly get this company public when the entire industry is falling apart around you? And what he said, and I believe this to be true, is that he positioned Activision not as a video game company, but as a creative and artistic company that would be creating new entertainment experiences in the future. Almost like EA. Sure, I think that that's fair to say. And in fact, there are a lot of parallels that often go a little unremarked, and some of which we talked about in our early history of EA episode, mm -hmm. between Activision in this period and EA in this period. And that's very true. They didn't quite take the same artists as rock stars approach. Now, they did heavily promote their VCS developers right. in the early days of the company. When they transitioned to the home computer software, they didn't necessarily promote the artists as rock stars to that same degree as EA was doing that. But it is the same idea that we are more than this one limited market. Mm -hmm. We are going to be the future of entertainment. And of course, they were starting to diversify into home computers. And they were able to convince people that they were moving into home computers, that because of their expertise, they were going to be a leader in home computer software, and that home computer games was going to be a key entertainment medium in the future. And that is how they managed to go public. It's still remarkable that they managed to convince anyone to invest in them in that period of time. But they did have an IPO in March 1983, and it was fairly successful. Another thought that occurs with that is that if they're saying that they're going to become almost like a leader in computer games on actual computers, then if I was an investor, I guess I could probably see this could be a transition point between Atari, who is doing consoles and computers, and this might be a potential new market leader, and that might be also why they got some of their money that came in. Right, I think that's probably fair to say. And this was a period of time when home computers were absolutely taking off. And, in fact, it turned out that home computers would suffer kind of their own crash just about a year later, in mm -hmm. 80, 83, 84, because of a ruinous price war that was started by Jack Trammell at Commodore. Now, in this case, we're not talking about a crash in the computer game software market. The computer game software market is a very small market in this period, and the barriers to entry are very low. We've talked about that before, floppy disks being much easier than cartridges. Right. So it's not that computer game companies were wiped out in this particular home computer crash, but what happened is there was this thought that the home computer market was going to grow and grow and grow until everybody had a computer in their home, a home computer. In this period of time, in the period when IBM PCs are still very expensive and are very much only useful for businesses, there was a segregation in the market that really doesn't exist today between a business computer like an IBM PC and a home computer like a Commodore 64 or a Trash 80. Basically, the home computer market in the United States, it was different in Great Britain, was defined as a sub-$500 computer market. Okay. 
And today, obviously, you do have home computers that are even cheaper than that. You have some email machines that I think probably go for as low as $250. So there's still an idea of computers that are marketed in a more limited capacity for the home. But the thing is, they're all PCs. It's just a matter of how much power you're putting into that PC. And to some extent, the level of software. Exactly. Some of those lower-end computers, as people might be aware, you got things like Chromebooks that could be as low as 150 100 bucks, or they can be as high as close to $1,000 if you want to get, like, say, the Pixie at this time. Sure. So there are still computers that are targeted specifically at a home, compu- uh, home consumer today, but it's not the same kind of concept of a home computer than they had back then, because a home computer was going to be something that was 6502-based or 6809-based, some of the cheaper 8-bit processors, whereas your business computers were your things like your IBM PC, which was based on Intel 16-bit processor. Now everything is essentially based on Intel processors or clones from AMD and the like. So it's the same technology, it's just scaled differently. Back then, it was very different technology in a home computer than in a business computer. Makes sense. So there was a thought that the home computer was going to grow and grow and grow, and it turns out it didn't because of this price war, and that's something we can cover another time, perhaps in more depth, but it's just enough to say that video game industry crashed 82 started end of 82 and then 83 84 85 home computer market kind of crashed in 84 and it didn't come back to the same level for the rest of the 80s now mm-hmm. that isn't to say that people weren't still buying computers for the home because some people were it's not like the video game industry where the video game industry just went dark for two years essentially mm-hmm. it's just you didn't get a high level of purchase in the home again until the PC started coming down enough in price due to the price wars between clone manufacturers that people started thinking, okay, PCs are cheap enough now. I can get a computer for the home because that can allow me to bring some of my work home and little Johnny can do his you know, school papers on that computer. And, oh, I hear this multimedia thing is going to be the future and I can't let my kid be left out of multimedia or he'll be one of the dumb kids. And right. so then... In the late 80s, early 90s, you start getting this idea of computers in the home again, but you're talking about a very different concept now because you're basically just talking about PC compatibles. Right. Yes, Mac lovers, some people were buying those too, but let's be honest. It was largely a PC compatible market, for better or for worse. (laughs) To be fair, I totally do not own a Mac. No, you definitely, because of your complete hatred for everything Apple, did not go through the Apple Store, did not buy an Apple laptop that was your constant companion for years afterwards, and did not love it thoroughly to death. No, that never happened. No, no, I did not have it in loyal service from 2006 to 2015, where it had officially died. Yes, that definitely never happened. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a bit of a tangent, but it's just a long way of saying that Activision, while it did go public in a period of time when there was no promise anymore in the video game industry, there was a great deal of promise in the home computer industry, and Activision managed to say, we are not a video game company. Not even we are a computer game company. They said, we are an entertainment company that is going to be bringing a new generation of entertainment experiences, and we're going to be a leader in this field. And that is why you should invest in us. 
And they managed to get enough people to put money into it. They did. But as it turned out, trying to be the leader in bold new entertainment is not a very good way to make money. (laughs) I guess not. So Activision went through a very bad period here. And they went through that bad period for a couple of reasons. First of all, they were really in a hole on inventory. Because they still had all their VCS inventory, their 2600 inventory. And they couldn't move it. They couldn't move it. They moved it as they could, in the quantities they could, but they were eating that inventory. They could not send it along to retailers for the full price that they needed to send along to to recoup their cost. So they are hemorrhaging money every year because of this toxic inventory that they still have. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem. It's also a problem that even with their computer games, I was told this by some of the people that work there, they essentially had to pay a penalty with retailers even on their computer game software and their other computer software. Well, because retailers, distributors, and retailers were not happy that they were having to eat all of this bad cartridge inventory. So they'd basically be like, yeah, we'll take some of this cartridge inventory off your hands, but you're going to have to give us a discount on your other stuff if you want us to take this cartridge crap. Right. The only way we'll take your cartridges and sell your PC games is if you give us a massive discount on both. Exactly. So they had to essentially pay a penalty even on their non-cartridge stuff. Plus, there was a lack of trust because distributors would be like, you already burned us once with this cartridge stuff. We're not going to let you burn us again with this disc stuff. So we're going to preemptively make sure that we make money for us to even carry your disc. You're going to give us at a point where we know we are going to make money. Exactly. So they had a lot of problems there. It's, It's interesting. This is a bit of a tangent, but the channels were very retailer and distributor friendly in this period where they had all the advantages. They didn't have to pay for product until after the main holiday uh, shopping season was over. They called it December 10th billing. Basically, Mm. you, if you had a toy product like this, you gave them an invoice when you shipped your product, but the retailer didn't have to pay till December 10th. Because retailers... it's not like this now. No, not so much. I can't speak for the toy industry, but video game industry, not like this anymore. Toy industry may still be this way, but of course the video game industry has divorced itself from the toy industry. Right. And this is because toy stores make the majority of their money during the holiday season. So basically toy companies run at a loss all year long and then make a big profit at the holidays and that saves their year. So they don't have cash on hand early in the year because they're losing money all year. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's why they don't have to pay their bills until December 10th. Until December 10th. So they had December 10th billing. Then retailers did not have to take a loss on any product. If a retailer has to discount a product because it's not selling, the producer of that product has to compensate them the difference in Hmm. price. Which is pretty crazy. Retailer is not going to take the loss. And there's no system in place for returns retailers don't have to accept returns from consumers, period, if they don't want to. But pretty much everywhere does now. Now they do. And what changed, Nintendo changed this. A lot of people talk about how Nintendo was so restrictive and they controlled this, they controlled that, they didn't let anyone in that they didn't want, they didn't approve games they didn't want, 
and that they had rigid control over the market. And a lot of publishers maybe chafed at that control. But on the other end of that control, they also had so much clout with retailers that they forced an end to December 10th billing. They forced retailers to start accepting returns. They forced retailers to eat losses on, on discounts because there was a period of time when Nintendo was a good 70 or 80% of what the toy industry was making. We briefly talked about this in another episode too. Nintendo in dollar volume was like 70 or 80% of the entire toy industry since they had such expensive product. And so you couldn't afford to alienate Nintendo and lose that product because that was your whole business. And so that clout allowed Nintendo to force certain changes in the industry that benefited publishers in the long run. So that's all a long way of saying that Activision was not in a favorable retail climate, which meant that they really were starting to hemorrhage cash because they couldn't get favorable terms on their product. The other problem with Activision is that Jim Levy really wanted them to be this cutting-edge entertainment company. And so they made a series of products that were very inventive and very avant-garde. And the problem, though, with these products was that a lot of them just weren't selling. They did a product called Little Computer People that was essentially The Sims before The Sims. It was not nearly as advanced, but... You still controlled it people running around it was just one person you had your own personal little computer person and everyone was different every disc shipped with a unique little computer person oh. different attributes hmm. so every person had their own and it was basically a dollhouse program they basically just moved around a single house doing what they're doing and you could interact with them a little bit you could chat with them a little bit you could play like card games with them you could start a card game with them or something mm -hmm. like that it wasn't nearly as interactive as the sims would be well, 15 years later, but for 1985, it was pretty darn impressive. Right. So it was the beginning of this kind of dollhouse game idea, so kind of The Sims before The Sims. They did a very interesting role-playing game called Alter Ego, where you basically lived a life. It was created by a psychologist, and huh. it was a life simulator. You would have a series, there was a branching path of different quote-unquote encounters, and what you did in those encounters would have certain consequences, good or bad. You also could, on the side, in addition to these scripted encounters, you could have dating relationships, you could have jobs, and it, it followed you from birth until death. And sometimes, Sounds pretty intricate. Yes, it was for the time. I mean, again, you have to remember this is a 1986 game, so right. it's not as intricate as something like that would be today, but still, it was a very interesting, intricate idea. And novel. It was very novel, and he also made two versions, one for men and one for women. Oh. So there was uh, a male path and a female path, though my understanding is that the female path was a female path written by a guy, and so maybe he didn't understand the female path quite as well as he understood the male path. But, <laughs> you know, points for trying, right? Yeah. And this was a very interesting concept. And they did a game called Portal, obviously not that Portal, where it was it was a hypertext game, essentially. And this is pre-hypertext. Mm -hmm. We're talking 1987 now. This pre-hypertext, but it was essentially a hypertext game. It was barely even a game. Basically, as you come across this civilization that's, that's ended, this planet that's no longer has people, but you have access to all their records. Uh -huh. 
And so you you piece together what happened by clicking through the records. And, you know, you'll be in one record, and then there'll be a link in that record to another record. Go to the next link, go to the next link, you know, just as hypertext works. Right. But this is in 1987 when uh, the Internet was not open to the general public yet. People didn't do hypertext all day long like we do today. So, right. I mean, it's an incredibly novel idea. But none of this product sold. Hmm. It was not what the market wanted. In the mid-1980s, there were three big genres in computer gaming in the United States. Again, Great Britain, completely different market. Right. In the United States, there were three genres that were really big. Adventure games, mm -hmm. which at this point were transitioning to graphical adventures. Text adventures were pretty much dead after 1984. There were some made, even some very good ones, but sales were falling after 1984. Mm -hmm. RPGs. Okay, of course. We're talking about things like Wizardry and Ultima Might and Magic. And military simulators. War. Mostly flight simulators. Oh, really? Yeah, not we're, yeah, we're not talking about military strategy games like board war games, because those that was a very niche market. We're talking about simulation programs. Most of these were flight simulators. Okay. Stuff like F-15 Strike Eagle, F-19 Stealth Fighter, Falcon, etc. There were a few, I say military simulators, though, because there were a couple of submarine simulators that were very popular. There were a couple of surface ship simulators that were popular. There were a couple of tank simulators that were popular. So, like, 70 or 80% of it was flight simulators, but there were also several other military machines. Those were the three big genres in computer gaming. Jim Levy was really not interested in military simulators or RPGs. The company did release some adventure games, including a couple that were fairly successful, but their successful ones were text adventures, like Hacker, a game called Hacker. Uh -huh. And when the market went graphical, they did do a couple of graphical adventure games, but again... Didn't really transition well with their staff? It was just... It wasn't that. It wasn't the Infocom problem of of not being able to transition to the new technology. It was the avant-garde problem again. The pro the graphical adventure products they made were a little less mainstream. They were a little they weren't so much in the Sierra King's Quest kind of mold, which was the mode that was very popular at the time. Mm -hmm. So they just kind of veered to the right of that market. The other two markets they were not interested in at all. And as a matter of fact, Dick Lairberg has told the story. He told it to me when I talked to him, but it's also available in the book High Score. He's told this story in the past too. Activision had a deal with Interplay. Interplay Productions was one of the first companies that Activision made a deal with to get into the home computer market. Mm -hmm. A publishing deal. They didn't buy Interplay. Interplay was an independent company. Right, they published. They, but they set up a deal. Exactly. And Interplay is very well known today for a few things, but kind of one of the big things that they were known for was the Bard's Tale. Bard's Tale. Bard's Tale, which was a very, very successful RPG. It basically took the wizardry format. The game wizardry had been very popular, but wizardry's technology was not updated very much in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So it was revolutionary when the first one came out in 1981 with its three-dimensional wireframe dungeon window and right. all of that stuff. First-person view. Exactly. But it was still basically using the same engine all the way until... Uh, another fellow by the name of David Bradley took over the property in the late 80s. So 
Wizardry was very dated by the middle of the decade. Bard's Tale was in a lot of ways a wizardry clone, but it was full color, mm-hmm. whereas Wizardry was wireframe and essentially black and white. And Wizardry was purely dungeon crawl, and Bard's Tale ad- added outdoor areas in addition to the dungeon crawling. Right. So Bard's Tale became a very big hit, sold 300,000 copies, which was huge in the home computer market in those days. So Activation finally got their break. It was a huge hit for Electronic Arts. Oh. Because when Activision had the chance as part of their development deal with Interplay to publish Bard's Tale, Jim Levy, according to Dick Larabur, this is according to him, declared that RPGs were nicheware for nerds. Oh, my. Not publicly, right. but that was his... He didn't go out and say that to his audience, but internally... Internal he, memo, He internal called it nicheware for nerds and had no interest in publishing a bard's tale. Oh, dear. So it became a major hit for the major competition. Ah. And this is kind of an example of how they missed the market. They were doing this cutting-edge stuff. And I asked Jim Levy, I didn't ask him about that specifically, that nicheware for nerds thing, but I did ask him about preferring to do a little less mainstream stuff and not do so much with RPGs, simulations, etc. And what he told me, and this goes back to his entire deal again, is that he really saw Activision as a leader. Uh And leaders don't do what everyone else is doing. So he really wanted to branch out and start doing other things and trying to find the next big hit. Exactly. And he felt that Activision needed to do that. He felt that Activision's strength was that they had great designers. And whether they did or not by that point, who can say? Certainly they had a couple of talented people there still. Most of the original founders were gone by this point, but they still had some talented people. David Crane was still there. Steve Cartwright, who was not one of the original founders but had been there for a long time, was also very creative. He felt that they had some of the best game designers. Mm -hmm. Whether that's true or not, that's how he felt. And that these game designers needed to keep moving forward. Hmm. They had to keep driving the market artistically. Right. Unfortunately, that meant that they weren't driving the market commercially. So we have a problem where they're trying to do something too artistic and they don't bring enough money in order to achieve that goal. Exactly. And then when you combine that with their ongoing inventory problems Mm -hmm. and the ongoing fallout from the crash, there's other fallout too. Shareholders sue them over stuff related to the crash. They have a patent lawsuit ongoing. One of many, many companies sued by Philips parent mm-hmm. company Magnavox that released the Magnavox Odyssey and there were certain patents on that so they have the lawsuit going there there were several pieces of fallout from the crash and they never quite had that big hit they had a decent sized hit with their uh, adaptation of Ghostbusters in 1984 mm-hmm. on the Commodore 64 they had a couple of other hits that were okay the text adventure hacker did well that i mentioned before but commercially they were not leading the market. Electronic Arts was having far more success commercially. And even other companies, Activision was the second largest companies in terms of sales uh-huh. behind Electronic Arts. But even smaller companies than them tended to be the companies that were having the hits. Epics had a lot of hits 
with uh, the game series, for instance, Activision just wasn't having the hits. They didn't have the really big AAA blockbusters that really bring in a lot of money that lets them weather out metacore games or poor games. They were just hitting, at best, an average game. Right. They they had one very massive hit in Shanghai, which is the tile-matching Mahjong game mm-hmm. that some of you may or may not have played. That was a massive hit for them. But most of what they were doing was not a big hit. They still had the inventory penalties, essentially, that they inherited from the crash. So Activision lost money for 16 consecutive quarters. Once they went public, March 1983, they had to start uh, reporting their results quarterly because they're a public company now. And so the first 16 quarters after they went public in March 1983 lost money in every single one of them. Wow. Now, they were cash rich because they did go public. So they just had all of this influx of cash. They were just hemorrhaging it left and right. Exactly. And they had enough cash to keep operating, keep operating, keep operating. Because it's not like all of those losses were gigantic. And they did do layoffs and other cost reduction methods as well. So not every single one of those losses was huge, but they were slowly losing their cash. Levy did try to diversify the company a bit. He bought a couple of companies. He bought GameStar, which was a somewhat noteworthy sports game Mm -hmm. company at the time. And he bought Infocom, the text adventure company. Hmm. That latter move was really kind of a mistake. Really? Infocom was in a very bad period of its history. Just to briefly cover it, text adventures... No longer raking it in, Infocom. Most right, we already said adventures. it's dead. Company is unable to tra- uh, to transition to graphical content largely because they tried to move into business software with a database product uh, product called Cornerstone. Mm-hmm. The big thing about Cornerstone was that it was portable, very easily portable, and so you could easily move it around all the different computer types out there problem was that by the time they finished Cornerstone, the IBM PC had completely taken over the business market. So you didn't need a portable database anymore. Right. You you got the IBM PC that pretty much handles it all. Exactly. So nobody was interested in Cornerstone. They sunk a lot of money into Cornerstone. That really killed them. And then they didn't have the money to invest in improving their game technology because all their money was sunk into this disaster that was Cornerstone. And so the company was in very bad shape, and they were not going to be able to get out of it. Jim Levy was a very big fan of Infocom games. Mm-hmm. This may have been a purchase that was kind of... He loved the idea of Infocom as a company so much that he overlooked the very serious problems Infocom was having at the moment he bought them. Almost like he was looking through them through rose tinted glasses. Exactly. And I did ask him about the Infocom purchase. And the way he put it, and it's possible that this is just justification after the fact. Who knows? But it does fit into his entire narrative for Activision. Mm -hmm. So I think it sounds fairly believable as well. His idea was Infocom had some of the best writers in the business. Mm -hmm. They had very good writers for their text adventures. Activision at least in Levy's own view, had some of the very best game designers in the business. Okay. 
what he says he wanted to do was actually integrate the companies, fully integrate. That's not what ended up happening. Infocom ended up continuing to function as a separate subsidiary. Mm -hmm. And there was really no integration between Infocom's operations and Activision's operations. But his idea, he says, was that they would integrate and then you would have some of the best game designers in the business working with some of the best writers in the business. And together, they would create brilliant new entertainment experiences, not new text adventures, just brilliant new entertainment experiences by combining those two skill sets. By having those two, we are able to make something that's great and awesome, but we don't know what that great and awesome thing is, if that video, if that text, if that something completely different. And that just that's very Jim Levy to me. That's very much what Activision was trying to do in this period. So I think when he discusses that, I think that's sincere. I believe that's what he wanted to do. Now, was that realistic? That's a good Probably question. not actually realistic. Integrating those two cultures, which were very different cultures, because Infocom was a very unique culture all its own. I think integrating those two cultures and inter inter integrating those two schools of game design would not have been a smooth process. I'm not sure that that could have actually happened. Might have been too hard. But that was the rationale, at least the rationale that, that Jim Levy gave to me. Mm -hmm. So he buys GameStar in 1985. GameStar, it, it never really pans out. I don't know if Activision mismanaged it or, or what. Game, but GameStar never really panned out as a brand. Their sports games were just left in the dust by sports games from competing companies like Epics and especially Electronic Arts. Right. So that didn't work. Then he goes and buys Infocom. <laughs> and Infocom's in really bad shape. So that's looking like maybe that wasn't the best deal to make. So at that point, the company's losing money for 16 quarters. It's made some purchases to expand its operations that aren't necessarily paying dividends. Yeah, I mean, effectively, he's buying companies that have more or less tanked. At least in the case of Infocom. GameStar, not quite so much, but yes. Okay. Have tanked or are in the process of tanking. And then he's hemorrhaging money. He's got 16 bad quarters. Not a good situation. And so at this point, the board does decide that enough is enough. And at the beginning of 1987, they ask him for his resignation. They, they dismiss him. Right. So that's kind of the end. You can kind of divide Activision into several phases. Phase one was their video game phase for their founding mm -hmm. up through the crash. Phase two, uh, what some have called Activision 2.0, uh, the Digital Antiquarian, which is a fantastic blog on computer game history. Mm -hmm. He kind of calls the 83 to 87 period under Levy Activision 2.0, because the company greatly reinvented itself in this new mode that we just discussed. Right. This is basically the end of Activision 2.0, when Jim Levy is dismissed at the beginning of 1987. And he is replaced by a gentleman named Bruce Davis. And that's a good spot to end part one, and we will delve into the mysteries of Bruce Davis until the company is bought over by Bobby Kotick. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. 
You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com, email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>